Welcome to Disrupted Asia, Between Crisis, Rise and Resilience, a podcast series by FES in Asia. Today's podcast will explore themes of social justice and the changes required in the global order necessary to ensure a more equitable and just society during the pandemic and in a post-COVID world. COVID-19 has exposed the vulnerabilities of workers across sectors, especially on the front lines of the crisis. How did labour unions defend the rights and protect the health of their workers? Have governments delivered social justice and protection when it mattered the most? Are they capable of long-term reforms that can protect workers and society in future times of crisis? And how could a global tax reform become a fundamental building block of a just recovery? To discuss all these critical global themes, we have with us today Kate Leppin. Kate is the Asia-Pacific Regional Secretary for Public Services International, the global union federation that represents 30 million workers worldwide. In the region, PSI Asia-Pacific works in over 20 countries across the region with more than 100 member unions. For the past 25 years, Ms. Lepin has worked across human rights, women's rights and for the labour movement in the region. Welcome to our podcast, Disrupted Asia Between Crisis, Rise and Resilience. I'm Kai Dittmann, and with us today we have uh, Kate Lappin. Uh, welcome, Kate. Thanks, Kai. Good to be here. Uh, great. Maybe let's directly dive in a little bit. A lot of countries that fared fairly well in this crisis had solid public health systems, and you saw where so the crisis also exposed some of the holes that these systems have. If you look at workers on the ground, and especially here in the region, Asia Pacific, where would you say you saw that the system worked? And where did you see the fault lines that broke open, especially during the pandemic? Well, with public health systems, I think we can see that where there were stronger, resilient public health systems that provide free public health, that everybody was better off. Workers were better off, but also um, the public. We could also see that where there was a stronger staff to patient ratio within public health systems, obviously they were more equipped to deal with the situation. And um, there's a global shortage in health workers and governments knew about that, but there and there has been supposedly a strategy to increase uh health workers around the world and the largest you know, gap is here in Asia Pacific, but unfortunately very little has been done. So in mo many countries, there was a uh, real gap there. And what that does is both for health workers, of course, that they were under huge stress um, in trying to deal with the outbreaks and um, to change the work practices and it increased infections. Um, clearly there wasn't enough PPE in anywhere in the world, really, or quality PPE. But what it also exposed is that where workers are precarious workers, which can be in the public health system um, as well as elsewhere, there was greater chance for infections, partly because workers had to work across um, sites. So, for example, in aged care across the region, you found workers working precariously in various sites and spreading the infection, unfortunately, because they just weren't provided with the proper PPE and, um, you know, had to work across. We also saw in hospitals cleaners who were contract cleaners working across various sites. And 
again, not provided with good protection. And I think in the good practices, <laughs> we did see, I mean, one thing, for example, I think we saw was uh, where unions could step in. I think there's real evidence that a unionised public health system has made us safer. And we've got a number of examples of that. Can you give us some of these examples on the ground where we saw that unions really achieved gains for public health, but also for the workers? So starting with Hong Kong, where a union health workers union went on strike because of concern that it had the virus had come to Hong Kong and made a range of demands in relation to um, their own safety. But of course, they were also making demands about public health and they've been able to deal reasonably well with the pandemic. In Korea, our health unions are very organised and were able to make demands around the system, around the number of workers, around the PPE that was provided, around the hours of work, because once you have this very heavy uh, PPE that's required in the COVID wards, you really can't work for an eight-hour shift. And so the unions made specific demands would keep them safer, but also the public. And I think that's been evident that Korea has been able to deal more effectively with the virus. Um, in India, a number of gov a number of health workers have taken industrial action because simply they were exposed. That we using the same PPE for you know number of days. They were also being fa facing discrimination. Nurses were being treated uh, with lower uh, access to PPE than doctors, but actually nurses are more likely to have sustained contact with um, patients than doctors. So though all of those cases, I think, demonstrate that um, actually when, you, when there's a unionised workforce, it's safer. Um, so, so what would be the reasons um, why that is? Well, in, I think firstly, union, in a unionised workplace, you can raise concerns and we're used to doing that around occupational health and safety. Most generally, we would have a union contact for occupational health and safety, and workers can raise concerns about risks, risks to them and risks to the public. They can, you know, it's much easier to blow the whistle on on um, risks. We had, uh, for example, nurses unions who raised concerns around uh, poor quality PPE that was um, being imported. And people were, you know, different companies were exploiting the situation, and um, and by raising that, you know, raising the concern and blowing the whistle in their workplace, it turned out that that was extensively across workplaces in a public health system, and really changed um, the quality of PPE. Another reason I think is um, because of the precarious work in a unionised workplace. You can deal more um, and have already dealt with issues of precarious work and getting hopefully getting people more permanent um, employment um, rather than contractual labour. And that's what we've seen in aged care, that a unionised um, workplace has been able to have more uh, permanent staff as well as um, higher staff to patient ratios. And here in Australia, another factor has been that um, in aged care, again, where there's a very large outbreak, 74% of deaths in Australia are in aged care but all of them have been in private aged care. There has not been a single death in public aged care. That really also shows the huge difference because the public system hasn't been using contract labour. 
and the public system has a higher staff to um, resident ratio. So there's vast differences both in a unionised workplace and a non-unionised workplace and in a public, uh, the public system and the privatised system. The advantage of uh, public systems very often is that there is a certain democratic accountability, but also a transparency to the public. And especially when we are looking at the problem of tax havens and um, the accountability standards that are often a little bit more obscure, especially in multinational corporations, there we very often have a lack then of accountability. Um, can you tell us a little bit about why it is necessary and why, especially now, that's the right point in time to talk about a global tax reform? This is work that PSI has been doing for quite some time on um, the need to reform the global tax system, but actually it's become more relevant than ever given the pandemic and the need for governments to raise money. Um, and we've added added some of materials to the to the kit so that it would be particularly relevant to the current moment. But um, the fact is that corporate tax evasion has been um, exponentially rising over the last decade or so. Um, we now have a situation where obviously the whole global tax system is clearly being exploited by corporations so that they can arrange themselves in ways that means that they're really 40% of global profits, it's estimated, are actually going into tax havens. Um, there's probably about $30 trillion sitting in tax havens at the moment, which is an extraordinary amount of money. I mean, given the, the amount you know of money that governments say they don't have at the moment, we know where it is. There's more money than ever before. It's just that the way that corporations have been able to fix the rules in their interests it has allowed them to avoid paying taxes. And at the same time, um, governments are in you know, a race to the bottom in tax competition to, to reduce their corporate tax rates and their wealth tax rates, um, partly as, a, as an attempt to attract foreign investment, although there's no evidence that it does so. So we've got to change the system and the system has got to change globally, but there's also things that countries can do um, at the national level and that unions, I think, can um, lobby for and that we've seen some success where unions have been able to expose corporate tax evasion with particular corporates um, and try and change some of the rules at the national level even though we haven't had any success really yet to significantly change the global system. But now I think with the, with the pandemic, I mean, there's a lot of interest, some governments, but also mainly from the public, that we have got to find a way to make sure that we come out of this in a more equitable way and have the money to pay for the systems. We need the public health system. We need money to, you know, stimulate a recovery. We clearly need also to support workers that um, have lost their jobs and need better social protection, and, and this pandemic has shown us that. One thing we've seen in a number of countries is a move towards ensuring that any companies that receive money during the pandemic, whether that be money for bailouts or money to provide services, a number of countries are excluding corporations that use tax havens, and I think that's an important step. just seems to be... One of the issues that large parts of the public want to be solved, but that is 
always 20 years in the future. It seems to me it's a little bit the nuclear fusion reactor of public policy. Well, I mean, actually, I think we've gone further than expected because who would have thought that the OECD would accept that this is a possibility? I mean, only three, four years ago, nobody would have thought that the OECD would accept that the whole foundational rules of how we think about a corporation are wrong. Um, and so that's that's certainly a step in the right direction. And that the fact that there's even a discussion around the need for a minimum global corporate tax rate, even though their proposal is, you know, completely unacceptable, <laughs> unacceptably low at the moment. But um, but I think that there has been a significant shift, partly because of the leaks. I think, you know, when we had the the different leaks from different tax havens that really did a lot to put pressure um, on governments with the public realising how unjust this whole system has been. And I think the situation we're facing now is that um, there's the public wants change and the public, you know, wants to see quality public services. Uh, you know, all the opinion polls around the world tell us that that's what the public wants. The public wants corporations to be taxed and quality public services for all. And obviously um, we know that the big mismatch here is that corporates are able to pressure the political parties. Um, so what, you know, I think our role is then as unions is to keep that pressure on, um, to show that there's an alternative because, you know, one of the big tricks of neoliberalism is to pretend that it's, <laughs> there is no viable alternative. There are many alternatives, and this is one of them: is to to get rid of this fiction that there are corporate that corporates are trading between themselves as legitimate you know, corporate practice, rather than just shifting money around the world. But I I also think we really need to acknowledge that it feels like there's momentum for for these changes because, as I said, the OECD has been discussing them, even though they've failed, and it feels like momentum because of the public. We see that a lot of the gains we made over the last decade when it came to alleviating people out of extreme poverty um, are being reversed. So while at the one point we see a larger need and a larger public support for this, actually on the ground the opposite seems to happen, that we have more inequality, that people are struggling more. So how can we bring the feeling and the want uh, on the one hand together with the lived realities on the ground? Mm. I mean, this is this is our huge challenge, isn't it? Is to um, try and maximise the opportunity that there is, which I think, as as you said, you're right that we can draw on the experience and demonstrate that it is possible for governments to step in and to manage the economy when you know required, rather than leave it to the market. And we also have evidence of what's wrong: the fact that you know governments had actually surrendered far too much ability. Uh, to regulate the economy and to retain some, for example, industrial capacity in terms of production, and that many governments had to break trade rules during this pandemic because the rules were just too weighted um, towards corporates. And so all of that evidence, I think, is what we need to retain. I mean, and um, and that is also evidence for solidarity, the fact that countries have had to work together in order to solve issues that impact on us cross borders. 
Unfortunately, though, the evidence we have of steps more recently taken is that uh, governments are preparing to use the pandemic for not for those kind of um, investments, long-term investments in a better future, but to use it to sort of undermine gains or undermine um, wages and conditions and regulations. Um, can you give me some examples uh, where governments try to do that? So in our region, of course, we've we've got some extraordinary ex examples. We've got um, Indonesia having rushed through the omnibus law, a law that changes m multiple pieces of legislation in order to favour big business and particularly in order to favour extractive industries and uh, rushed that through knowing that there was going to be a strike and decided that the parliament would um, preempt the strike and just rush through a, a set of laws that have barely been seen by you know anybody outside of the legislature or um, effectively debated. A, a body of laws that cuts wages, undermines wages and conditions, that privatises public services, particularly electricity, that cuts regulation, um, in all, particularly environmental regulations, and that really effectively undermines democracy, even likely to contravene the constitution. And yet they've been able to rush that through. In India, we've seen similarly the government um, be able to rush through laws that they've been wanting to pass for a long time that would diminish labour rights and conditions and merge a series of laws into three. Um, and in some states in India, they've even suspended labour laws so that there is no, effectively no labour protection for up to three years. So these are the kind of responses we've seen from governments in our region. They're rather than the kind of you know, responses we've been talking about, which are those to build, to really rethink the kind of economic policies they've had and, and build um, a new sort of COVID recovery plan would address existing problems as well as those that have arisen in the pandemic. In June, you wrote an article for uh, our Corona Briefs and you argued for a recovery plan unlike uh, anything seen outside of war. What would a recovery plan that looks at a sustainable development, socially sustainable and economic, uh, ecologically sustainable plan, what would it look like that actually can create a future that we actually want to aspire to? Yeah, that's right. I think we've got the opportunity to really rethink, not just small piecemeal um, changes, but really rethink the foundations of um, the social contract effectively. This is an opportunity to look at where we've gone wrong since um, you know, since the sort of post-Second World War period. And as the union movement has been saying for some time now that we need a just transition to deal with climate crisis, we've been saying that, you know, we, we really need to rethink um, the social contract in relation to social protection and wages and that we've eroded public services for so long that it's creating real foundational risks for a society. For, And these are all should be part of what would be a significant rethink and that the leadership that governments could show around a whole new period of um, a social contract. We, we've seen a range of other changes to the economy, mainly through digitalisation, for example, that governments haven't really effectively responded to. 
And this is their opportunity to do that, to really think about, okay, what would the future look like? How do we foundationally shift the way that we um, value resources and what we value in the economy? And I think the changes then that would be that we need large-scale investment. One of those is health, because as I said earlier, um, the World Health Organization has already recognized that we're facing a shortage of 18 million health workers. So a, a big shift in the economy where you had governments saying, what is it that we can invest in that's good for everybody and low carbon? Health services and care services are clearly a huge part of the future we need if we're going to care for an aging population and you know just basically be able to deal with the kind of crisis that we've seen. So that 18 million extra workers also requires an investment in education. You know, we need uh, health education, public systems, and um, we also need, with the kind of change in technology, we need sort of lifelong investment in education so that workers are always able to have access to that lifelong learning. We know that we need investment in energies and in um, renewable energies. And unfortunately, almost all governments have left that to the private sector. And uh, yes, there's some private sector investment increasingly, but again, it's only—it's going to be only where that is profitable. We can't, we won't, we'll never see a whole-scale um, transition to renewable energies without governments stepping in and providing the infrastructure to make that happen. So we need the capacity for our public institutions to be ready for this type of crisis, but also the climate crisis. We need that sort of research and development um, in the public sphere that can help us deal with any type of crisis in the future. It was super great talking to you. Uh, as per usual, a pleasure. Yeah, thanks, Kai. Thanks for having me. This was Kate Leppin, the Asia-Pacific Regional Secretary for Public Services International. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Disrupted Asia, Between Crisis, Rise and Resilience. This podcast was brought to you by FES in Asia. Interview by Kai Dittmann, research by Aryaman Bhatnagar, directed by Mirko Gunter and produced by Andovar. Please make sure to subscribe, tell your friends about it and don't forget to visit our website fes-asia.org for regular updates on freedom, justice and solidarity in Asia. Music